Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and my guest today is Paul Sherman. Paul is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice. He litigates constitutional cases protecting the First Amendment and other individual liberties in both federal and state courts, and his constitutional views have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and The National Law Review. Paul, welcome to Ideas Having Sex. Chris, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So you have been at the Institute for Justice for, I don't want to do the math, but since 2007. Yeah, it was 15 years this July. That's amazing. Can you tell us broadly what the Institute for Justice is and what what the mission statement is, what kind of stuff you guys do there? Absolutely. So the Institute for Justice is a nonprofit public interest law firm. And we were founded in 1991, uh, so we recently had our, our 30th anniversary, uh, and we litigate across the country in state and federal court on behalf of individual rights, and we work in four key areas. Property rights, economic liberty, which is the right to earn an honest living subject to only reasonable government regulation, uh, educational choice, and freedom of speech, the First Amendment, which is the primary area of my practice. Well, and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is because I would I would love to hear about your broader uh, experience with First Amendment cases and your views in general. But I'm a fan of the First Amendment, and it, it's long occurred to me that, that nobody ever seems to talk about the potential First Amendment infringements of things like licensing restrictions on who can practice mm-hmm. psychology or law or education or all of these kinds of things like if you go online and Google First Amendment exceptions, it's you probably won't see that listed as a common exception. You might. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I have seen something along those lines listed, like I think on the Wikipedia page, but a lot of the common list just I don't is it just that it's not even considered as a free speech exception, or is it something else? Can you can you just give an overview of what you call occupational speech? You're just the first person sure. I've seen actually write something about it. Or maybe sure. I just didn't know the term to search. There, there are a few things to to unpack there, and I'm happy to do it. So the, the first thing you mentioned, uh, First Amendment exceptions. So just so that your listeners know, there are a small number of categories of speech that the Supreme Court has said just fall outside the scope of the First Amendment. So even though they're carried out by speech, they're not protected. And these are things like defamation, true threats, child pornography, uh, things of that nature that have always been treated uh, as not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, Now, uh, occupational speech, speech that you earn your living from, is not on that list of things. The Supreme Court has never recognized it. Um, But for a long time, it was treated as essentially unprotected. Uh, And what's really happening here is there's been a collision between two strains of Supreme Court jurisprudence. On the one hand, you've got First Amendment jurisprudence. And over the last 50 years, the Supreme Court has become much more protective of speech. In fact, there's there's really never been a better time 
to be litigating First Amendment cases than right now, because the Roberts Court in particular is very receptive. And generally under the First Amendment, if the government is regulating you because of what you are communicating to another person, uh, courts scrutinize that very closely. It's subject to the highest level of judicial scrutiny, which is called strict scrutiny. Uh, and for a law to be upheld under strict scrutiny, it has to be narrowly tailored uh, to serve a compelling government interest. So that means the government has to have a really good reason for the regulation, and it can't burden more speech than necessary. So most laws that are reviewed under that standard get struck down. Now, on the other hand, since the New Deal, uh, unenumerated rights, like the right to earn an honest living, have been subject to a much lower level of judicial scrutiny, which is typically called rational basis review. And under rational basis review, uh, the burdens are completely flipped. So the burden is not on the government to justify the law. The burden is on the plaintiff to show that the law is not reasonably related to any legitimate government interest. Uh, now, that's a very permissive standard, and generally, uh, the government wins under that standard. So with occupational speech, what you have is a collision between these two different standards. On the one hand, you've got the First Amendment, where courts take it seriously. And on the other hand, you have the right to earn an honest living, which they don't take seriously. And the question is, when these two things collide, which one wins? And for a long time, lower federal courts, who had no guidance from the Supreme Court, said, well, the government wins. Uh, occupational licensing, licensing things like doctors or lawyers or psychologists or dietitians, uh, if we license them, even though they get paid for their opinions and their speech, uh, that's really just the regulation of the practice of an occupation. And so we're not going to look at it very closely. The Institute for Justice thinks that that's wrong. And we've litigated a number of cases arguing that, in fact, the First Amendment standard has to apply. And a couple of years ago, in a case called Nifla versus Becerra, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. And it said that there is no exception to the First Amendment for so-called professional speech. And that whenever the government regulates people based on the content of their message, that regulation is subject to strict scrutiny. Uh, and so what we are continuing to argue in federal courts now is that applies even to things like uh, dietetics. So I have a case now, we've got a cert petition pending before the U.S. Supreme Court challenging Florida's law, which requires you to get a dietetics license before you can give individualized dietary advice. And our position is simply, if anyone can write a book of dietary advice, and anyone can, anyone should be allowed to give one-on-one -on -one dietary advice. Can you back up? Did you say you had litigated a case or just that the Supreme Court had had mm -hmm. uh, made a ruling about professional speech? So so we did not litigate uh, Nifla versus Becerra. Um, I believe that was litigated by uh, ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, and that case dealt with so-called crisis pregnancy centers. Um, so these are pro-life pregnancy centers that provide prenatal services, uh, but they don't refer people for abortion. Uh, and they've been very controversial in uh, pro-choice circles because people argue that they mislead pregnant women um, and don't tell them about the full range of you know, services that they might want. So California tried to get pro-life pregnancy centers, to, well, tried to require them to post certain notices about the availability of abortion. And because these groups are pro-life, that was, of course, anathema to them. And so they challenged the law. 
the Ninth Circuit upheld the law under the so-called professional speech doctrine, saying that, well, because we're regulating speech in this professional environment, normal First Amendment rules don't apply. And the Supreme Court strongly rejected that, saying that they had never recognized that kind of exception before. Uh, and there was no historical basis for that kind of exception. So what's been the general fallout from that ruling? You know, we have continued to litigate in the wake of that because that was not an occupational licensing case. So one of the things that we have been trying to do is make clear uh, that that rule applies to occupational licensing laws the way it would apply to any other law. There has been a mixed reception in the lower federal courts. Um, so some of the lower courts have recognized that in the wake of NIFLA, their old occupational speech or professional speech precedent is just no good anymore. Um, it's been reversed. So, for example, in the Fifth Circuit, we represent a veterinarian named Ron Hines. Uh, he's retired now, but he gives veterinary advice over the Internet to people who may not have access to a veterinarian. Texas has a law that says you can't give veterinary advice pertaining to any animal that you have not physically examined. But Ron gives advice to people who aren't even in the United States. There, there are people who live on you know, rem remote islands off the coast of Scotland who have a cat, and he'll give them advice. They don't have access to a veterinarian. So we challenged that regulation, and the first time around, we lost on the grounds that the professional speech doctrine that speech was not speech within the meaning of the First Amendment. It was professional conduct. So for, for First Amendment purposes, that theory is like telling someone, you know, uh, well, your cat should be on this kind of diet is no different from like spaying or neutering a cat. They both get the same level of First Amendment protection, which is You mean not. the action of spaying or neutering a cat? Yeah, correct, yeah. correct, yeah. So in the wake of NIFLA, we refiled his case and said, you know, the Supreme Court said that the Fifth Circuit got it wrong, um, and so you should reverse your precedent. And the Fifth Circuit did. Uh, and so now that case has been remanded to the trial court to proceed under the correct standard of review. Um, at the same time, the Eleventh Circuit, which covers uh, Florida, uh, recently upheld uh, Florida's dietetics license law. And what they said is that when you give individualized dietary advice, you are engaged in the conduct of nutritional counseling. Um, so there's still, the courts have said, and the Supreme Court said in NIFLA, that the government has a freer hand to regulate conduct that incidentally burdens speech than it does to regulate pure speech. The and, example you just gave is funny because, did they phrase it that way? They're engaged in the conduct of counseling, which yes. just is speech. It's like, yes. if you give a talk and someone said, no, you're, you're engaged in the conduct of giving a speech. Yeah, it, that, that's exactly right. And it goes to show, in fact, Judge Diarmid O'Scanlan of the Ninth Circuit uh, in an earlier case referred to this as just a labeling game because any kind of speech can in some sense be recategorized as conduct. You right now are engaged in the conduct of interviewing. Stand-up comedians engage in the conduct of inducing amusement. And dieticians <laughs> or people who give dietary advice engage in the conduct of nutritional counseling. But what the Supreme Court has said is you don't get to play that kind of labeling game. When you're trying to decide whether a law regulates speech or conduct, what you look at is, in a particular application, what is the conduct that triggers the law? 
And if the conduct consists of nothing more than communicating a message, whether it's about diet or health or law, if that's the case, then the law is a regulation of speech and has to be treated as such. What, if anything, have lower courts said about, you know, what test they use when they're trying to determine whether something is conduct or speech? Is there any, like, (laughs) method that they go through that's regular? Or is it just, as you said, a kind of ad hoc labeling game of this seems more like conduct or we Mm want to call this conduct because the precedent has been treated as conduct, it seems? So a couple of things. Number one, the Supreme Court has an established test for distinguishing speech from conduct. Uh, it's, the, it's the one I just mentioned. It comes from a case called Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project. Um, it's actually older than that. Um, but in 2010, in this case, Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project, the Supreme Court reaffirmed it. Uh, and it's the Supreme Court's most recent and clearest statement of what the test is. I think the biggest difference between the lower courts that get this right and the lower courts that get this wrong is that the ones who get it right explicitly apply the test from Holder and cite Holder, and the ones who get it wrong tend to just ignore Holder. And sometimes they will cite to earlier cases from their own jurisdiction where they say, oh, in a previous case, we held that this was medical conduct and nothing in the NIFLA decision overturned that holding. So we're going to continue to treat this as medical conduct. Hmm. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more in detail about the specific cases? Have there been more than one that that you've taken part in or just that IJ has taken part in on on occupational speech and mm-hmm. or, or what you think the, the the trajectory of this is going to be in the next 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. So so IJ has really kind of pioneered this area and we have been litigating cases that touch on these issues since the 1990s. Way back in, I think it was 1995, uh, we litigated a case against the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, uh, which said that you needed to get a a, uh, license from them if you wanted to even just publish uh, commodities trading advice. And we represented people who uh, published various uh, manuals, some of them published software that would help people Uh, make decisions about uh, commodities trading. Um, If your listeners aren't really familiar with commodities trading, I highly recommend the movie Trading Places with uh, (laughs) uh, Eddie Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, uh, which will teach you everything you you need to know about it. So uh, those earlier cases focused more on people who were speaking to the public at large. And there was always kind of this distinction between speaking to the public at large and speaking one-on-one to individual people. But as the Supreme Court's case law developed, that distinction became less and less tenable, and we were able to take on cases that were more aggressive and involved more individualized advice. Uh, So one of our first cases, we represented a gentleman named Steve Cooksey, uh, who wanted to give dietary advice in North Carolina, and he had a really interesting life story. He had been uh, very overweight. Uh, pre-diabetic, then uh, one day had to be rushed to the hospital in a near diabetic coma. And this was a real wake-up call for him, and he completely changed his lifestyle. Uh, He adopted a low-carbohydrate paleo diet, um, started exercising uh, vigorously, lost a ton of weight, got in great shape, and was able to manage his diabetes uh, without using insulin because he was on this low-carbohydrate diet. And he published a blog where he would give people advice. Um, both kind of directed generally to the world, um, but also people could write in and he would give them one-on-one advice. 
And the North Carolina Board of Dietetics actually went through his website with a red pen and showed him on a line-by-line -line basis what he could and could not say about diet. We thought that was pretty extreme, and we challenged that, and the government ended up backing down. While we were litigating that case, we heard about another case involving a parenting columnist named John Rosemond. Uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with him. He's syndicated across the United States. Uh, he also lives in North Carolina, and the Kentucky Board of Psychologists said that he was engaged in the unlicensed practice of psychology by having a newspaper column published in the Lexington Herald-Leader, where he gave individualized advice to a parent who wrote in about problems they were having with their teenager. So these were these cases were moving us closer and closer towards pure one-on-one -on -one advice. Uh, and, and we won that case in the trial court. Since then, we represented Dr. Hines. We've represented people who have engaged in uh, the unlicensed practice of engineering, uh, we represented a gentleman named Mats Jarlstrom, uh, who is an engineer who became sort of obsessed with the timing of red lights uh, and the red light cameras after his wife got a ticket. And what he found is that the standard formula for setting the timing did not account for people having to slow down when they make right-hand turns. And that was how his wife got the ticket. So he wrote to the state engineering board and said, hey, you might be interested in this. And they said, well, we're not actually interested in that. But we are interested in the fact that by doing this math and sending it to us, you have engaged in the unlicensed practice of engineering. <laughs> uh, so people may not know, but but uh, most engineers are not state licensed engineers. Most people like electrical engineers and things like that, they just you know, practice engineering and they call themselves engineers, but they're but not licensed. in this licensed. state they were? Uh, well, so there's always an exception in state engineering laws that allows for like electrical engineers to do their thing and, you know, mechanical engineers to do their thing. What the engineering licensing laws are really about is like ensuring that when a bridge goes up, the bridge is not going to fall down. And so like the people who certify that the bridge is structurally sound, they have to be licensed professional engineers. But if you're, you know, designing things for Apple or something like that, you don't have to be a licensed engineer. So anyway, we we sued the uh, board of engineers there on behalf of Matt Jarlstrom, uh, and we won. And we've continued <laughs> to litigate further cases. We've had numerous cases now involving state boards of surveying, um, which seem to uh, sometimes think that they have a monopoly on producing maps. Uh, so we represented a company that assists banks. So when, when banks are giving out loans, they want to know what's the property I'm giving the loan out on. And what this company would do is it would use uh, existing data from like Google satellite images and existing data from the government about, you know, the location of various plots of land. And it would just combine the two so you could get an outline on a map that the bank could see like, oh, that's where that property is. Um, it wasn't intended to replace a formal survey. It wasn't something used to legally establish property lines or meets and bounds or anything like that. Uh, but the state survey board said, no, if you want to do this, you have to be a licensed surveyor in this state. So we sued and we successfully challenged that. And now we've more recently moved into, uh, in the wake of NIFLA, uh, more direct professional advice. So we represent people who engage in teletherapy, uh, we represent, uh, you know, again, Ron Hines with his veterinary advice, and I represent uh, my client, Heather Kokish Del Castillo, uh, who gives dietary advice.
So am I right? I have this impression that the Supreme Court or the courts in general have ruled that you know the, the primary or the most important purpose of the First Amendment is to protect political speech. Is that right? That's, that is something that the Supreme Court has repeatedly said, although one of the trends that we have seen over the last 30 years is that the Supreme Court has uh, moved away from that, not in the sense that it has lowered the protection for political speech, but that it has adopted a far more libertarian view of the First Amendment that doesn't draw those same kinds of distinctions. I, I had remembered being in a class and I, I never got I know I don't know what the rationale for the the idea that the First Amendment only or primarily protects political speech. It's great that it protects political speech. Mm-hmm. But I remember a, a professor in college and I think the, the explanation that he gave was just that the First Amendment follows a political document. I don't know if he was serious or not, but it didn't seem like a very important reading. But the, the reason I ask is because whether that's like a legitimate perspective or not on the purpose of the First Amendment, you know, do you, do you think there's a stronger case to be made for the freedom of, for instance, your profession? So much mm-hmm. of the speech of lawyers, mm-hmm. especially lawyers who work in like a public interest law firm, is obviously political. And I assume you are legally allowed to practice law, but, you know... <laughs> Could you test that by hiring someone who wasn't and then? Well, so we actually uh, just took on a case that raises this issue. Uh, we represent a, a company called Upsolve and Upsolve based in New York wants to help people who are hit with these bogus debt collection lawsuits. There's a lot of basically scammers uh, who will go around and they will try to collect debt that is uh, no longer collectible. But the people who they file these lawsuits against are typically unsophisticated, uh, don't have a lot of resources, and often lose by default because they just don't show up. They don't know what they're supposed to do, and they can't afford a lawyer. Upsolve wants to provide these people with guidance on how to respond to these lawsuits. Um, It's a relatively straightforward process. You know, there are forms that you fill in. And if they just show up, most of these people will prevail. Um, or they'll certainly have a better chance than uh, if they don't show up at all. Um, And Upsolve uh, successfully got a preliminary injunction in uh, New York federal trial court saying that, yes, they can have non-lawyers provide this type of one-on-one advice. So I am a member of the legal cartel, but I am no fan of the legal cartel, and (laughs) I am happy to see these these First Amendment uh, rules applied to us as well. Um, I will say the the Supreme Court has recognized, in particularly political situations, areas where uh, within the professions there is more First Amendment protection. Classic example of this is a case called NAACP versus Button. Uh, so most lawyers are not allowed to directly solicit clients. And it's, I think, based on kind of an antiquated notion that lawyers are so sophisticated and good at convincing people that if we directly solicited clients, we would overbear their will and, you know, they would be under our our control. Um, You're wizards. Yeah, exactly. Um, There is an exception to that, though, for pro bono lawyers, um, like the lawyers at the Institute for Justice. So if if you are not trying to profit off of it if you're just you know if you're doing this litigation because it's part of your broader political mission 
then you can directly solicit clients. And that's actually been a, a rule for decades. Um, you know, now, thankfully, we're seeing the Supreme Court in a more holistic fashion catch up to the, the First Amendment interests that are involved in these professions. Are there other organizations that are also working on this issue or is it are you guys alone voice in the wilderness? I think that the Institute for Justice is the only group that is litigating these in a, I would say, a consistent and principled fashion where what we are primarily interested in is protecting the First Amendment rights of people in these professions and not part of broader uh, culture war issues. Um, so there have been a number of cases involving so-called conversion therapy bans. Um, conversion therapy is psychotherapy basically designed to make gay kids straight or yeah. trans trans kids not trans anymore. Um, a number of states have passed laws that prohibit this as to minors. Uh, they have been challenged in court with somewhat mixed results. Um, they raise similar First Amendment issues. Um, the question in these cases really is whether the state has enough evidence that this type of therapy is harmful uh, that they can prohibit the therapy. And that, that may very well be the case. Um, you know, one thing that listeners need to know is that just because the First Amendment applies to something does not mean that the government can't regulate at all, you know, or that it's completely prohibited from regulating. What it means is that the government has to satisfy its evidentiary burden. It has to come forward and show that there's a real problem and that this law doesn't burden more speech. Than necessary to address that problem. Uh, so there, there are groups that litigate those. I tend to find those are part of more culture war. It's much issues. more about the content. You, your guys's interest is more in the principle of of speech and and free expression rather than you know going to bat for a particular pro or con, like whether it's pro life yeah. or pro choice. I I I think that's fair, and the you know you also get the sense from these cases because the. The speech claims are often paired with religion claims, um, you know, so it's there. It's very much the the interest of the people litigating them to promote the the religious freedom of people to engage in this kind of messaging. On cases like that with the conversion therapy, I mean, if the evidence came through that it was super harmful, it seems like, you know, you wouldn't even need to regulate it on a First Amendment basis. Could you just regulate, you know, not regulate it, but potentially sue people who downplay or don't mention the the you know obvious findings that it's harmful or something i guess it would just be like fraud like you're like hey here's some, yeah, here's a, here's a great therapy and i forgot to mention that it's going to make your yeah. son suicidal yeah that it's that it's quack therapy and in fact there have been lawsuits like that um i believe there was a lawsuit uh where someone successfully persuaded a court that you know this uh healthcare this mental health practitioner uh defrauded me uh, by making these claims about what they would be able to do, and they weren't able to do that. Um, and that's, you know, another thing is that there has long been a distinction in First Amendment law between laws that prophylactically ban speech out of concern that the speech is going to cause harm, and laws that allow for after-the-fact liability if your speech causes harm. The benefit of the latter uh, is that you are you are not shutting down that speech that might it's not more targeted. Harm. Yes, correct. And it's 
I assume the instigating force in the latter case is more going to be private people and their individual concerns more often than it is going to be like the state writ large, which probably is you know more more threatening to speech rights in general. Yeah, I I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's, you know, apply it to any other, um, apply it to defamation, you know, Uh, if if the government passed a law that said you can't tell lies about people, that would just be a disaster. (laughs) I mean, the the government trying to enforce that. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why the Supreme Court uh, has held that you can't punish just lies sort of in the air. They have to be related to some kind of other harm like fraud or, or defamation. So you guys are, are the main organization or the only organization maybe working on this issue specifically and in a broadly principled way. Is anybody else, as far as you know, uh, writing about this issue? Your, uh, your article was literally the first time I had ever seen something written about this in a clear way. Professor, uh, well, actually, Dean now, uh, Dean Rodney Smola, a well-known First Amendment advocate, or I should say First Amendment scholar, but I would also consider him an advocate because his his work is broadly pro-speech, uh, has written an excellent article uh, that's just called Professional Speech. Um, and uh, if you search Professional Speech, Rodney Smola, S-M-O-L-L-A, uh, that article will pop up. I, I think that's one of the most thorough reviews of the case law in this area. Can you spell his but, last name again? Yes, S M O L L A, and his article is called "Professional Speech." I'm going to include um, that as well as your article in the uh, show notes. Oh, great! This was a really under theorized area for a long time, um, and that's one of the reasons why the lower courts went so far astray was that the Supreme Court had just never weighed in on this issue. Uh, the closest it had come was in 1985 in a case called Lowe versus Securities Exchange Commission that involved a disgraced investment advisor um, who was sued by the SEC. They said that he uh, could, could no longer publish this newsletter because he had been prohibited from acting as an investment advisor. Uh, it went to the Supreme Court and much like our the commodities trading case I mentioned, uh, the court was confronted with this issue about whether you could license people who publish newsletters. Uh, the court ended up avoiding the First Amendment question. They decided the case on statutory grounds. Uh, they they said that a, an exception in the law applied to this newsletter. Uh, but three justices, led by Justice Byron White, wrote a concurrence. And Byron White laid out this test where if you are giving one-on-one advice, you are engaged in the practice of a profession. But if you're giving advice to the world at large, you're engaged in speech. And the problem with that was it it had no basis in First Amendment law whatsoever. And subsequently, it was never cited by any other justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, But because it was the only thing that anyone on the court had ever said about the issue, it ended up having an outsized influence on the lower courts. And so you started to see uh, the Fourth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit, all adopting this test that just sort of sprung forth fully formed from the the head of Byron White. <laughs> was the test um, really one-on-one or was it more per, like, like if I'm giving marriage advice to, to a couple, that's one-on-two. Mm-hmm. Is that to the world yeah. or is that? Well, so his, uh, his, his exact phrasing was, was something along the lines of uh, personal when, nexus. Yes. Personal nexus. Yeah. If, if you take, if you take the affairs of a client personally in hand and exercise um, judgment on their behalf, um, now, okay. you can certainly imagine situations where 
that would be the case and the First Amendment would not apply. So, for example, uh, if I'm an investment advisor and I'm handling client funds and making investment decisions for someone, uh, the First Amendment doesn't protect that, but it does protect my investment advice. And so that was the the element of, of White's decision, which now has clearly been um, rejected by the Supreme Court in NIFLA, that, that now it's clear that the advice, even if individualized, falls within the scope of the First Amendment. Okay. Why do you think this is such an underappreciated and under-theorized form of speech and speech restriction and First Amendment principles? Well, I, I think it goes to what you mentioned earlier, which is that there is this broad view, um, commonly taught, that the First Amendment is primarily about protecting political speech. Um, this was a view that was dominant in the early to mid-20th century. Uh, writers like Alexander Mickeljohn and uh, Robert Bork, um, this was, was his view. He wrote a, um, a famous article called Neutral Principles and uh, Some First Amendment Problems, uh, in which he made this argument that the First Amendment can really only be understood to protect political speech. And then later, Robert Post uh, of Yale um, in the 1990s made this argument. The uh, Supreme Court has definitely moved away from that. And uh, basically starting in the 1970s, when the court for the first time recognized First Amendment protection for uh, commercial speech, um, which means uh, generally commercial advertising, uh, it had previously been treated as completely unprotected, just like defamation or obscenity. Uh, and then in the 70s, they started to protect it. And as that developed and as, as commercial speech got more and more protection, uh, you started to see this, this philosophical shift away from the this political orientation of the First Amendment to protecting speech as speech um, based more on a principle of just individual rights and the autonomy of the speaker and the interests of the listener, because it, you know, it's not just the speaker's right to convey their message, it's the right of listeners to go out and decide for themselves uh, which messages are worth considering. Is there anything else you want to say about occupational speech? I, I was going to shift gears here in a second. You know, if readers, if readers, if listeners are interested uh, in learning more about some of our current cases, they can visit our website, ij.org, uh, and they can see all the stuff that we're up to. Uh, and watch this space because we will be hearing probably next month whether the U.S. Supreme Court will be granting review in the dietetics case that I mentioned. The IJ website will definitely be on the show notes as well. So the reason, one of the reasons that, um, actually, I don't know if this is the, the reason exactly. I found you because I found your article and I think I followed you on Twitter. And then at some point, uh, you would like to retweet it, a post I made with a previous guest about jury nullification. Um, yes. And uh, so I just wanted to ask you about if the IJ does anything with jury nullification. I'm not sure, you know, if there have been cases where my understanding in general is that it's as a practice jury nullification is perfectly legal and acceptable but you know officially frowned upon and discouraged and and outright lied about by judges mm -hmm. to juries mm -hmm. do i have that about right and and has ij done any work with jury mm -hmm. nullification and maybe maybe you want to say what it is Sure. So jury nullification is just when a jury decides that even though the government has proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt, so they have proved that the defendant committed the act for which they are being tried, 
the jury nonetheless votes not guilty, generally because the jury thinks that convicting the person would be unjust or that the law itself is unjust. There's a rich history uh, supporting jury nullification. And there's also there are also dark moments in history involving jury nullification where, yes. you know, all white juries would nullify verdicts against white people accused of violence against black people. So, you know, it is it is a subject not without controversy. Um, in, the Institute for Justice does not work on jury nullification uh, directly. Um, you know, it's it's an issue that um, I'm interested in. And it also raises some First Amendment questions because there have been people who have been arrested and prosecuted uh, for distributing information about jury nullification outside of courthouses. I almost you know, decided to do that at one point and I looked into it and I thought I didn't want the headache because I, I read that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the lines that courts have have drawn is that there's a distinction between distributing information about jury nullification just kind of in general outside the courthouse and doing it trying to influence a specific case. So if there's only one case being tried that day and you show up and you try to hand all the jurors these pamphlets on jury nullification, you're probably going to get in trouble. Um, But you know, if it's a big courthouse with a lot of cases and you're just making this information available, you know, this this is not legal advice. Don't act on on the uh, on this advice. But but that is a line <laughs> that that courts have drawn. Um, you know, as for it being permissible, but frowned upon, I, one of the ways I've heard it described is that juries have the power to nullify, but not the right to nullify. I don't know if that distinction really matters. If you can do it and you won't be punished for it, it sounds to me like like you can do it. Um, and my own perspective is that serving on a jury is one of the few times in people's lives when they will actually wield the power of the state. And if you are wielding the power of the state, you have a moral obligation to do justice. And in some cases, that does mean nullifying, even if you think the uh, the defendant did it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in the cases, I'm curious, I don't know how well you know the specific history of it, but that you know, obviously there are, like you said, dark moments of nullifying where the jury is failing to, you know, punish or hold accountable someone who clearly did something horrible. This happened in the Jim Jim Crow South. This is also not necessarily just an issue of jury nullification. Anytime you're in a society with an overwhelming unjust popular perception or popular uh, perspective, like, say, the Jim Crow South, these kinds of unjust things are going to happen in any popular institution, whether it's democratic or jury or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like, yeah, it's this isn't a particular failing of jury nullification when you have a society that's, that's like dominated by like an odious ideology or something. These problems are going to come up under any institutions. Yeah, I I, I think that's fair. Uh, I mean, it's not like the judges in the Jim Crow South were. Uh, for well known for being even handed between defendants of different colors. Yeah. So I was looking at the IJ website and there, you know, you guys have the um, the areas that you mentioned earlier that you litigate. But I also saw like a list of projects and I was wondering if you would say something about those maybe going down. So one of them had to do with uh, civil asset forfeiture. Can you talk about that project, what the projects are and specifically what civil asset forfeiture is and what work you guys are doing on it. Our, our work, generally speaking, falls within the four big categories that I mentioned earlier. But, you know, 
being libertarians, we find a lot to criticize with the government. And so, uh, you know, we sometimes stretch the boundaries of those and sometimes go a little bit outside them. Uh, civil asset forfeiture is broadly part of our property rights work. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, civil asset forfeiture is a process under which the government can seize your property, sell the property, and keep the proceeds uh, without ever uh, convicting you or even charging you with a crime. It stretches back to old admiralty law where someone might be uh, trying to run an embargo and you know or or ship in contraband and they live on the other side of the planet you can't exercise jurisdiction over them uh, but you have their boat and so you adopt this fiction that you're not suing the person you're suing the boat uh, and so as a result you see these cases with names like united states versus three thousand one hundred and ninety two dollars in u.s currency or my favorite is the united states versus one solid gold object in the form of a rooster that's great yeah so you've got this guilty property fiction we think forfeiting property from people who have not been convicted of a crime is absolutely unconstitutional um, and so we litigate across the country to challenge civil asset forfeiture to help people get their money back and, and to roll back some of these abuses, because what you end up with is uh, these government agencies and police departments become self-funding, uh, and the police departments police for profit. They'll stop cars on the interstate, but they won't stop the cars that are going north carrying the drugs northward. They'll stop the cars that are going south carrying the cash south. <laughs> and they do that because very often police departments get to keep all or some of those proceeds. That interferes with the legislature's power of the purse. You know, one of the powers that the legislature has is to determine how much funding the police are going to get. And that determines how much policing we're going to have. And when these agencies become self-funding, we get over-policing, we get a perversion of their interests. You know, instead of going out and trying to solve violent crimes, they're focusing on raising money. Um, it's just a, a horrible system. So it's it's something that we challenge across the country. And it's this classic case that happens in other cases with like lobbying for bailouts of privatized gains and socialized losses. The department gets to keep these profits, but if they're not doing well and they're losing money, well, that's the taxpayer's problem. What about the, there was one on uh, Fourth Amendment cases and surveillance issues? Uh, this is also related to our, our property rights work, although instead of being about takings or civil asset forfeiture, uh, it's about the right to enjoy the quiet privacy of your property. There are a number of exceptions to the Fourth Amendment's requirement that the government has to have a warrant if it wants to search your property. Uh, one of them is the so-called open fields doctrine. So under the open fields doctrine, the government can come onto your property, it can nose around, as long as it doesn't come onto what is called the curtilage of your property. And the curtilage is your house and the area immediately surrounding your house. So let's say you live on a farm and you've got your house and then a ways off you have a barn. Well, your house and the area surrounding it are your curtilage. The police can't go in there without a warrant, but they can snoop around in your barn without a warrant. They can, in some cases, fly drones over your property without a warrant. Uh, we have cases where uh, game officials have installed cameras on people's property without their knowledge or permission. On um, the property. On their property. They've they've gone onto their property and installed these like hunting cameras 
to see, you know, are people hunting on this property illegally? The open fields doctrine, we think, has no basis in the historical understanding of the Fourth Amendment, which was much more rooted in a notion of property rights. Um, and it was really only in the 20th century that we started to see the interpretation of the Fourth Amendment shift more towards a, a privacy basis. Uh, and that allowed the court to say things like, well, you don't really have a strong privacy interest in what happens in this barn where you don't live. Your privacy interest is really, you know, in the place where you sleep. We think that the Fourth Amendment provides much more protection for, uh, than that. And uh, yeah, so we are litigating uh, a number of cases on that issue right now. What's the current state of the jurisprudence around things like the Snowden revelations and that kind of like metadata snooping that's going on and that intelligence agencies are constant, constantly engaged in? It's not my area of expertise. I, there is something called the third party doctrine uh, in Fourth Amendment law. One of the, and this is a, a real tension that we face now because so much of our information is in the hands of other people. Um, but traditionally, the police have not needed a warrant to get private information from you if that information is in the hands of a third party, such as the telephone company. So the police can go to the telephone company and say, hey, you know, we want to know who this person has been calling. There are questions about whether that complies with the uh should comply with the Fourth Amendment. Um, They're compelling the telephone company or just asking in this case? Uh, compelling. Oh, okay. Yeah. And if you go to court and say, well, you know, this is this is my information and they didn't have a warrant to get it. I mean, could the telephone know? company go to court and say they, you know, why don't they need a warrant to, to I mean, if it's the telephone company's yeah. person's house's papers and effects, and it seems like they would have a Fourth Amendment case. Yeah, well, and, and you know, you do see um, uh, internet companies do this sometimes, uh, trying to, to maintain the anonymity of, of their users. You can go to court. I, you know, as I mentioned, it's not my particular area of expertise, um, but, you know, it's, it's an area where um, kind of the modern changes to our information economy um, have raised a, a host of new Fourth Amendment issues that just didn't exist, you know, 50 years ago. Sure. What about the Immunity and Accountability Project, touching on qualified immunity? So, Hot topic today. Yes. So qualified immunity, for, for those who don't know, it may be easiest just to give an example. Let's, let's say a police officer beats you up and you sue him. Uh, well, the police can't beat you up for no reason. That violates the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. But the thing is, is that if you take that police officer to court, what the court will do is look to see, well, was it clearly established at the time you were beaten up that under this particular set of facts, you couldn't be beaten up? Just the burden of proof's entirely on, on you. Yeah. And, and what has ended up happening is that people basically have to show that there was another case that was identical to mine that had already been decided in this jurisdiction. Um, and so you see cases turn on distinctions as fine as, well, they beat up this guy when he was laying on the ground and a court said you can't do that. But this guy was kneeling on the ground and no court has said you can't beat up a guy who's kneeling on the ground. So this so this officer gets qualified immunity. And that means that even if he violated your constitutional rights, you cannot hold him personally liable for that violation. And one of the worst things about it is that the Supreme Court has said there's this two step process. You, you decide whether the Constitution was violated. And you decide whether it was clearly established that it was violated. 
the Supreme Court has said you can decide those in either order. And so what courts can and usually do is say, well, we don't need to decide whether your rights were violated. All we have to decide is that it wasn't clearly established. And we're not going to make any new case law about whether this actually violates your rights. It's enough for us to say that it wasn't clear. And as a result, you never get this clarity in the law. And so the same violation can happen again and again and again. And then it's this self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you can't find another case that's exactly the same, because they won't allow other cases to be decided whether or not your rights were violated. Exactly. So qualified immunity is an exception to the federal civil rights law that people sue under when their rights have been violated by a state official. Um, But it is not written anywhere into the law. It is an exception that was entirely invented by the U.S. Supreme Court. Their view was, well, police just couldn't operate if, you know, when they're making these split-second decisions, they were thinking about liability. And the problem is that the rule is not tailored to that problem at all. It gets applied in all sorts of situations where the police are not making split-second decisions. And it's also kind of a fiction that the police officers are out there reading the federal reports, you know, checking on every case that comes down to see, you know, like, oh, okay, well, now it's clearly established that I I can't beat up people who are kneeling on the ground. (laughs) Yeah. So we think that qualified immunity is, is unjustified. There are many ways that the government could deal with these liability concerns uh, that fall short of you know, shutting off any compensation for people who are harmed. And then there are other types of liability. Uh, There's judicial immunity, which is something that we're challenging now. So prosecutors and judges typically have absolute um, immunity, not qualified immunity. Just if they are engaged in their job of being a judge or being a prosecutor, you can't sue them for anything they do. Um, And of course, you know, you just look at the news, you can see all kinds of prosecutorial abuses. It seems like on an almost weekly basis, you hear stories about, you know, shocking examples of evidence being covered up and people being exonerated after 30 years in jail. And and very frequently, these people have uh, no uh, no recourse at all. Um, And that's not right. Is that true? Even if you can if you can show evidence that like evidence was manufactured or or you know, a prosecutor lied, knowingly lied in the court to achieve a conviction. Yeah. So the doctrine can get pretty complicated and pretty fact specific. So I, I can't give a general answer to that. Okay. Um, there there are situations where a court will say, well, this prosecutor, when they were doing this particular thing, was actually not acting in their prosecutorial capacity. They were acting in some other capacity. Okay. And and they can be held liable for that. But that's a very narrow exception that typically does not apply. Is and what's the concept of sovereign immunity? Is that is that a broader concept that that subsumes some of these or is that a separate thing? So sovereign immunity, there is, I think, some connection. Sovereign immunity is the idea, um, and it, it comes from the common law, uh, that the sovereign Uh, cannot be sued without his consent. Now, the government has, in many ways, given consent to being sued. One of those is the Federal Civil Rights Act, which is, you know, what IJ files its First Amendment cases under, for example. Uh, The government has said, if a state official acting under color of law violates your rights, you can sue them. So that's a waiver of sovereign immunity. Um, But there are many other situations in which 
the government has not waived sovereign immunity. Uh, and again, people can can find themselves out of luck. Uh, this is also related to the interpretation of the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, which is supposed to be about preventing citizens of one state suing another state, um, but has subsequently been interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court to be much broader than that and to provide a much broader grant of sovereign immunity uh, to the states than the, I would say, the ratifiers of the, the 11th Amendment intended. And then were you saying that IJ does work with these other types of immunity as well, not just the qualified immunity from the police perspective, but the w- w- what was the term that you were talking about, prosecutors and judges? Uh, yeah, pr- prosecutorial and judicial immunity. Yeah, okay. so 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 we work on, on those cases too. Um, we have, for example, a case involving a prosecutor who at the same time he was a prosecutor was serving as a judicial clerk or the judge who was deciding his cases and was in fact writing some of the orders deciding those cases, which I mean, just, wow, it's beyond belief. And yet, you know, it's, it's a situation where there's remarkably some question of whether you can get compensation for the harm that you may have suffered because of this incredibly unjust arrangement. It's beyond belief, but it's great drama if someone wants to write a legal movie about this. And then there was another project, Food Freedom. Can you say a little bit about that? That's yes. related to the your, to the property right. I would say property rights and economic liberty. Um, okay. So our food freedom initiative, we, uh, among other things at IJ, we love to eat and we love good food <laughs> um, and we want there to be as much of it as possible. And we want entrepreneurs um, to be able to go out there and start their businesses or work from home to start a business from home. And so we've worked in a number of areas involving food trucks Um uh, and food truck regulations. So very often, restaurants are opposed to food trucks operating because they they view them. I mean, they are competition, um, and they think that they're stealing their customers. But customers aren't property, and competition isn't theft. And food trucks, as long as they're not obstructing traffic, as long as they're not making a mess of the sidewalks, should be able to operate, um, and people should be able to to buy food from them. We have also done work on what is called cottage foods. Uh, so that's, you know, food that people make at home, uh, frequently baked goods, um, but it can be, you know, pickles and jam or or anything like that. And, uh, you know, states have had, uh, in some cases, very restrictive regulations on that saying, you know, you you have to prepare these things in a commercial kitchen. You know, the the kitchen where you prepare food for your own family is not enough. And we have challenged those. We've lobbied on those and gotten states to change their laws. And in fact, now it is legal in all 50 states to sell baked goods that you make at home. Uh, we continue to to litigate and push for legal changes that will expand this even more broadly uh, so that you know people who have a talent for making jams and jellies or anything you like uh, can sell it as long as they're honest to people about where it was made. Um, you know, so this was this was homemade or this has not been inspected by the government. If you're willing to do that, you should be allowed to sell your product. Customers aren't property and competition isn't theft. That was beautiful, Paul. Is is that original to you or is that an IJ slogan? Uh, that is is one that we've used before. So it's it's a it's a memorable line. Well, competition may not be theft, but I'm going to steal that line. <laughs> you're, 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 you're welcome to it. Information <laughs> wants to be free. Are there any projects, future projects you're working on currently that you'd like to plug? 
you know, the big thing that I'm focused on right now is this cert petition that I have pending at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, that's going to go to conference on December 2nd. Uh, the hope is that we won't hear anything about it uh, right away because uh, the way the Supreme Court works when they decide a case, uh, when they decide not to take a case, they let you know right away, right after the conference. If they are going to take the case, they hold on to it for a little while and, and kick the tires and make sure that there are no uh, problems with the case. So I'm hoping not to hear anything in early December, uh, but maybe something in later December or January. Um, so that would be uh, absolutely fantastic if, if we can get that one up. Okay, great. And where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work and the cases you're working on and things like that? They can find me at ij.org and they should read our uh, newsletter, which is available online. It's called Liberty and Law, um, covers all of our cases, the breaking news on our, our victories. Uh, and then if you, if you want my personal opinions on things, which uh, are only sometimes political and very frequently about chess, uh, I'm on Twitter at Paul M. Sherman. And the Liberty and Law, is that is that findable through the IJ website or is that a separate that, website? Yeah, that's that's findable through the IJ website. Oh, and and an, another thing that listeners may like, we put out a weekly newsletter uh, called Short Circuit. Um, so every week, uh, federal courts hand down scores of decisions. We read basically all of them from the federal courts of appeals, and we summarize the most interesting ones. And we we try to put out a a fun newsletter where uh, I don't know some some of us use puns, some of us make jokes, and uh, it's. I, if you're into federal courts, it's worth checking out. It's called Short Circuit, and you can find it on our website. I'll include all of those on the show notes. My guest once again has been Paul Sherman, senior attorney with the Institute for Justice. Paul, thank you for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.